Welcome to Free and Fair with Frenita and Foley. In this podcast, we break down complicated legal issues surrounding the 2020 U.S. presidential election. I'm Frenita Tolson, Vice Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs at the University of Southern California, Gould School of Law. And I'm Ned Foley, the Director of the Election Law Program at The Ohio State University, Moritz College of Law. Before we begin, a quick note. You can find us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Hello, Fernita, how are you? Good. I'm really good, actually. We have a very special guest with us this morning, Ned. Indeed we do. Uh, So I am... We're very lucky to welcome to the podcast uh, Professor Richard Pildes, who is the Sutler Family Professor of Constitutional Law at NYU Law School. Um, welcome. Hey, great to be with you guys. We Fun are to so do excited. a different format uh, for conversation here. Yes, uh, and, and Ned and I have had some good ones over the past year or so, just thinking through issues of democracy, which you are an expert on. So we are very lucky to have you. Um, so, so I know that you have written extensively on legal issues related to the structure of democracy in particular, um, but you're also a Supreme Court advocate. Um, you're an editor of one of the first major case books in the area. Uh, you've written dozens of articles, including su- suggestions on how to make our democracy better. Um, most recently, you wrote an op-ed in the New York Times that are that is of uh, particular interest to uh, some of the Um, I don't don't want to say fallout following the 2020 election, but I certainly want to emphasize that uh, how the 2020 election season really brought into focus how we need to think about making our democracy better. Right. We we barely made it. (laughs) In some ways, we barely averted disaster. Uh, If anything, the January 6th storm of the Capitol really taught us a lesson about how polarized our politics are and how much work. Um, remains to be done. So, so thank you so much for coming on the show. And, and and Ned and I would love for you to talk a little bit about the op-ed that you published recently in the New York Times to get our conversation started today. Sure. So I think the way to uh, kind of situate this op-ed in the larger debates about uh, political reform and voting rights um, and the like is that there's a lot of attention going on right now, including in Congress with the you know, proposed legislation, HR1, on issues like um, access to the ballot box, uh, absentee voting policies and rules, um, early voting policies and rules, you know, all of those issues, how to protect access at the same time that we protect the integrity of the process. And what I tried to do in this New York Times op-ed is is kind of pull back from all of those issues and reflect on what we have learned in recent years about American political life and culture and our politics, um, which is that we actually have kind of very serious extremist forces in our culture, in our politics, Um, And that these pose a a very serious threat to the stability, the legitimacy of American democracy. And so are there ways to think about uh, political reform that would try to uh, minimize the effect of these forces on our politics? And I would say that um, although this perspective has not gotten a lot of attention yet, um, to me, it may be the most important framework or the way of looking at what we need to do with political reform uh, of any of the, the sort of thoughts that are that are out there, or at least to me, this seems like a, a, a deep, enduring threat that doesn't go away after the 2020 election um, and um, uh, that has uh, uh, certainly destabilized democracies in other countries. Um, I think that um, many of us are really surprised you know, that we have to be confronting these kinds of issues in the United States. Um, But we do. I I think that's that's the reality. We have seen, uh, you know, not just in the the specific acts on on January 6th, but we have seen both before and after January 6th, um, uh, these uh, extreme forces that... um, uh, in some ways don't accept the outcome of democratic elections or at least are, are um, you know, serious challenges uh, to maintaining the legitimacy, the stability uh, of American democracy. So that's, 
that that's where I was coming from in writing this op-ed. Um, and then I had a number of specific suggestions in different areas uh, for what, what we might do if you accept my diagnosis that this is a, a serious, serious problem that political reform needs to think about. Well, that's great. And it's um, a welcome point for us because in recent podcasts, Fernita and I have been talking about that same problem. So to have your op-ed appear sharing the concern that we've expressed. And then, as you say, beginning to offer solutions, we said, well, we got to talk to Rick about, about this. So, um, Fernita, let's ask Rick what some of those solutions might be, because we certainly need to hear them, right? <laughs> it's a, I will say it's a welcome change. Uh, so, Rick, one of the problems Ned and I have is we spent two or three podcast episodes complaining uh, without many solutions. <laughs> um, so, so we definitely would love to hear yours. Yeah. So, um, uh, let me, um, start with the presidential nominations process. This is one of the areas I, I kind of identified. Um, and this is something that's actually been, been something I've been writing about or, or been concerned about for, for a number of years already. Uh, so, it takes maybe a little bit to, to sort of unfold the issue in the in the right context, but um, most people don't know um, how we used to choose the nominees for the presidency from the major political parties through almost all of American history for 170 some years until we made a dramatic change in the 1970s, which, as I said, most people no longer you know realize was a change we actually made. So for the first 170 years or so, the um, elected officials from the political parties from throughout the country, state, local, national elected officials at these political party conventions that people are aware of, um, had the major role, the major say in who the party's nominees were. And there were some primary elections, for sure, especially in the 20th century. Um, and primary elections played a, an important role. Um, one of the most famous examples is that when John F. Kennedy was trying to become the Democratic Party nominee in the 1960 presidential election, um, uh, he was a Catholic. There was serious concern at that time, political you know, concern, um, uh, what relationship would a Catholic president have to the Vatican? Would this be a political issue? Would would non-Catholics be willing to vote for a candidate like this. Um, and so um, Kennedy ran in the West Virginia primary, uh, which was a, an electorate that was overwhelmingly uh, Protestant um, and did extremely well and, and sort of proved that, uh, that he could win over votes from across the religious spectrum. Um, and also made a very important speech about separation of, of church and state. But in any event, that's a long-winded way of saying that in this 170-year period where elected party figures had a major say in who the nominee was, it's not to say that there weren't some primaries, that voters didn't have some direct input, but there was a balance between primary elections, which never were enough to control the majority of the delegates at these conventions and the role of the party figures. Um, and in my view, um, although that, that system you know, became denigrated as you know, kind of smoke-filled, backroom kind of deal-making, um, there were some good, very good things about it. Um, one of the things was that uh, uh, the people making these decisions had a lot of experience with the people they were choosing between. Um, they knew how they functioned in government. Um, they knew uh, how they dealt with issues. Um, the other is that the, the figures who emerged had to be kind of a compromise of the different factions and interests within the political party. Um, and, you know, we could debate this at great length, but there, there were advantages that are, that are too easily dismissed by the sort of image that settled into everyone's minds about these backroom deals, blah, blah, blah. 
in the 1970s, we made a really radical change to how we select our presidential nominees. And my view, it's one of the most radical changes we've made to the structure of American politics um, and democracy in the last you know, 50, 60 years. Um, but as I said, it's a change that's forgotten because it's now taken for granted that this is the way we do it. And what we did is we basically shifted to the system that is familiar now in which voters in primaries or caucuses vote for candidates and the delegates to the convention are overwhelmingly almost completely chosen by voters in this primary election process. So it's a highly populist, if you will, or some people call it plebiscitory kind of system for choosing. And you're choosing between people within the same party, um, which um, uh, makes it a bit, can make it very difficult for voters to have a clear sense of what the differences are between these candidates. Um, so this system puts a, a, a primary value on, on kind of name recognition going into the primary process. Um, the ability to kind of capture a lot of media attention. Um, and most democracies do not choose the nominees uh, to lead their parties in a process that, that so eliminates any significant role for the actual party elected figures from throughout the country. So my concern uh, about this change is it makes it a lot easier uh, for uh, celebrities, people with high name recognition, people who have perhaps demagogic kind of appeals, uh, people with less experience in government uh, to uh, become the nominee of a major party. And, and obviously one of those two people is gonna get elected president. Um, so the question is, having said all of that, you know, is there a way we can build back into that process some of the pressures or incentives that require candidates uh, to, to uh, reflect better uh, sort of compromises between different interests and factions in the party. Because right now, for example, um, if it's a crowded primary field and you can win 30% of the vote or 35% of the vote, you might you know, win that primary, um, even though you have far less than majority support from the primary voters in your party. Um, and very kind of factional candidates can actually succeed pretty well, especially in crowded primary fields. And our primary fields are getting more and more crowded, as we know. Anyway, um, so the changes we could consider making go from sort of more modest to more dramatic. The ones I propose in that New York Times piece are the most modest changes, um, which is to use ranked choice voting um, in the presidential uh, nominations primary election process for both political parties. And we'll probably talk more about ranked choice voting. Maybe you guys have talked about it a lot on your podcasts already. Um, uh, but um, just to kind of try to simply um, explain it for people who haven't been exposed to it before, you, this is a system in which you rank the candidates in order of preference. So if there's 10 people running in the Republican primary or the Democratic primary, you rank as many of those candidates in order of preference. Um, and um, the idea would be, uh, Again, let's keep it simple. If, 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 if a state is gonna give all of its delegates to the person who wins the primary, um, you don't want somebody who wins with 35% of the vote, you want somebody who has broader support than that. So with ranked choice voting, if no one got to 50%, you'd eliminate the candidate at the bottom, you take the votes of that candidate, that the vote, you would take the votes of the voters who voted for that candidate, look at who they voted for second, and transfer their votes to that second preference of those voters. And the idea behind ranked choice voting is that you then, you know, there may be a candidate who's very strongly liked by 30% of the primary electorate in a state, but vehemently opposed by 70% of the voters. Uh, and so a candidate like that is not gonna do well with ranked choice voting. Um, a candidate who uh, appeals more broadly, even if that candidate might be the first choice of only you know 30% of the voters. 
But if the candidate appeals to a lot of other voters in the party who rank that person second or third on their ballots, that kind of candidate would do better. And so to link this back to the long you know, story about what we used to do, this is a way of trying to build back in some of that same uh, structure that requires kind of compromise between different interests in the party to get behind a candidate that a lot of people in the party support. Um, and it makes it less likely more factional candidates uh, are likely to be elected. And, you know, and I think that that means that 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 more extremist candidates um, who might get 30 percent of the vote in a primary, 25 percent, whatever, um, aren't as likely to make it through the process. Um, so that's that's one idea on the not the presidential nominations process. Use ranked choice voting, have the parties use ranked choice voting um, to generate nominees who reflect a broader consensus in the party. Now, so before we, we, we get to, about, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, sorry, no, no, no. I think it's a it's so important. I want to focus on that. I know you've got other ideas, um, and I have a question on that one. But Fernita, do you have a question? Do you want to? Um, Kick us off, or should I go ahead? No, I'm I'm happy to to kick us off because I have to admit, and I feel bad about admitting this. When I read the op-ed, and I um, so I teach a a class on presidential politics, and 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 so there's a literature about uh, from scholars who did not like the post 1972 changes to the presidential primary process because they did feel like the insiders did a pretty good job of identifying candidates who could appeal to a broad range of the electorate. Um, and in sort of reading the op-ed, you know, I, I think I had overlooked the extent to which that was a moderating force. Um, <laughs> so I, I have to admit, before I got to Rick's proposed suggestion, I was like, is he saying we should go back to pre-1972 nominating conventions? <laughs> um, and, you know, and so I feel guilty because initially I was like, hmm. <laughs> but I think, you know, after living through the last four years, um, and sort of being in this space with our, our politics being as extreme as they are, um, it, it, it definitely put me in the mindset of trying to sort of capture uh, some of the potentially good things of the system we had before. But, you know, the, the suggestion about ranked choice voting was really a, a welcome one because it sort of preserves the role of the voter here um, while trying to capture sort of the essence of what was good about what we had before. But I do wonder, um, and, and Rick, you may not have an answer to this. I mean, this is not the, it's a suggestion. It's not the system we live under. Uh, but I, I, how does this interact with the fact that the most partisan voters participate in the primary? Are we just choosing between extremes? Um, or do you think that overall we'll still end up with a more moderate candidate, right? Because it seems like the since the voters themselves are very partisan, they tend to participate in high levels at this stage of the process. Do you think that um, your suggestion of ranked choice voting will, you know, end up with a more moderate candidate or is it just a sort of a spectrum, right? We'll end up with somebody who is not as extreme as, say, a Donald Trump on the right, but you get someone, you know, closer to a Mitt Romney. And I'm also thinking about this because the, the primaries tend to push all of the candidates to either the right or the left in a way that I'm not sure is always productive for American democracy. I'm, so I'm just wondering about the interaction between. Yeah. So I guess, you know, let me make a, a sort of a, a broader point about institutional mm -hmm. design and, and political reform. Um, I think that the way institutions and the institutions of elections are structured certainly create incentives um, that make it more likely or less likely certain kind of candidates will run um, and make it more or less likely that certain kinds of candidates will win. But these are just tendencies that are created by institutional structure. So it would be a mistake to think that any particular change will necessarily have this particular consequence, you know, in terms of which candidates are, are likely to, to do better or worse. So you, I think you can create tendencies, you can create incentives. You know, one of the things that's appealing about ranked choice voting is that instead of uh, a situation in which you're essentially in a one-on-one in -on -one combat against other candidates, where you're trying to, uh, uh, denigrate them to, you know, get votes to you. In a, in a ranked choice voting system, politicians have an incentive 
to appeal to voters who they know are not going to be their first choice. They know they're not going to be the first choice of those voters, but they want them to rank them second or maybe third on their ballots. Um, and so, you know, it's hard to, to, to see that as not creating strong incentives for candidates to try to appeal kind of more broadly. Um, you know, e there's even actually a hope that it may create less kind of hostile negative campaigning. I, I don't know for, for certain about that. And I also think we should approach all these issues with humility um, because um, what I really wanna do on all these issues is, is open up a discussion about these different possibilities and proposals rather than come in and say, um, at least on many of them, you know, I know that we should do this because it's likely to produce these effects. You know, here's what we think, here's what we think this, here's, here's the problem. Here are ideas that we think may help mitigate the problem, but, but let's talk about them. Um, and, you know, going back to the presidential nominations process, and I'm glad you're as interested uh, in that as I am, because I, I think it gets way, way too little attention actually, um, because there aren't really sort of court cases on it very much. And, um, but one of the things about the system before the 1970s that I was trying to explain this earlier, um, but a better way to put it is it, it, it allowed people who wanted to be nominated by the Democrat or, or Democratic or Republican Party, they had to appeal kind of along two different directions. They had to appeal to the insiders because they needed support from elected officials around the country, but they also uh, could appeal to, to, to the outside forces, um, to voters, because there were some primary elections. They just didn't determine the whole game. And so, you know, I think it's a mistake to think of it as a, a purely insider kind of dynamic. What's so interesting about it is it had both of these dimensions. Um, an outside track for candidates who wanted to show the party leaders how strong their popular appeal might be, the inside track. Um, and um, we just kind of almost overnight uh, blew that system up uh, with the, the changes in the 1970s. Now we could talk about more dramatic, I, I like the ranked choice voting idea for exactly the reason you said, which is it's the most modest thing. It still keeps voters in, you know, completely in control. Um, so politically, you know, it's probably more, more uh, broadly acceptable maybe, but, um, you know, the, it, it, I think it is also worth talking about, um, would it be a good idea to build back in more of a role for the party figures, not, you know, to go back to a system in which they would fully control the outcome? Um, and, and how might you do that? For example, um, one idea, I'm not sure this is a great one, but uh, people have suggested uh, having the, 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 the parties in Congress and the House and the Senate sort of vote and endorse a particular candidate. Now they Bring probably like the congressional caucus, huh? Right. <laughs> In a sense, they wouldn't be choosing, but they would be signaling to voters, you know, especially, you know, we have these 20 candidate fields now, you know, um, so that, you know, that's one idea that's been, you know, put out there. Another idea is uh, to build back in a, a role for what's called superdelegates. Um, which uh, the Democratic Party has, the Republican Party doesn't really have. The role of the superdelegates has been cut down in the Democratic Party because the Sanders forces are very opposed to superdelegates. Um, and, and they're, of course, very influential. But I mean, you know, I, I think, you know, that these are all things that could be discussed. Um, but as I say, I'm, I'm putting forward, you know, what I think of as a, a, a modest change that doesn't um, challenge the role that the voters have had since the 1970s. So that's on that's on that front, the nominations process. Can I just emphasize the point about humility and then I'll let you to jump in here, Ned, because uh, I think that's really important um, because I do think that as history has shown that when we have these changes, it's really hard to predict how they'll have, how they'll change things in reality, right? Like this is why political elites are so resistant to changing our system. Uh, but I just, I love, I really love the fact that, you know, 
you you have captured this this notion that there were good things about the past system that people forget, but also the role of voters, because let's not forget that without the voters, we probably wouldn't have had, you know, President Obama. Um, you know, we I, I'm not even certain that President Biden would have felt comfortable choosing Kamala Harris. Right. Like it's just the voters do play an important role here. But I think that these suggestions try to capture the best of both world, worlds in a way that I think is productive. Um. Well, you know, I'm thinking that, Rick, if you're willing, we'd love probably to have you back for a, a second episode because you've got four different areas in your op-ed to talk about, and we may not get through all four today. But this one seems important enough um, worth spending a little bit more time on before moving to, to a second area. And and that is, um, and, and I asked this question as someone who I think, you know, is very sympathetic with both your general objective and even the particular idea of ranked choice voting in the context of presidential nominations. Um, but I worry that while ranked choice voting would have avoided, and I'll just be clear about it, Trump in 2016, because he was not the majority candidate within the Republican field at the time, and that the ranked choice preference mechanism would have picked, you know, either Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio or somebody else, is it possible that the Re Republican Party has, you know, migrated to become, you know, more Trumpy, if you will, in their own ideology, to the point that now, if you're trying to figure out where the center of gravity of that party is, at the moment, it is, you know, full, you know, MAGA Trump. And so that to, to, to put the ranked choice voting system in place, wouldn't eliminate the so-called extremism tendencies or polarizing tendencies of the Republican Party because that's the the identity that the Republican Party has now taken on for itself. You know, and if that's true, you know, while I agree that we should be, you know, have humility and be very tentative, is the problem now even bigger than it was, say, four years ago? Well, I guess let me respond with two points about that. So first, this goes back to what we talked about um, earlier. Um, you know, these kinds of design changes um, uh, will only create tendencies. They won't. They won't guarantee or dictate any kind of outcome. So, if a if a major political party in the United States is overwhelmingly controlled by sort of extremist politics then that's going to play out in who they nominate, almost regardless of uh, what system uh, you use. Uh, now, the second thing is, I, you know, I would disagree with your, your premise of the question. I mean, I don't know it's particularly productive for us to get into political analyses of, you know, where the Republican Party is right now and the like. I, I think it's very early for the Republican Party right now to sort out for itself you know, what is the party's identity? Where is the party going? Um, I think, um, you know, there are issues about what that question means in the short term. Uh, like, let's say in the primaries that are going to come up in the next election cycle. Um, and there are also questions about what it means, you know, in the longer term. Uh, but I think there are real, um, uh, you know, divisions within the party um, about exactly what its identity is and should be. And um, I, I, I certainly wouldn't myself make any characterizations about that at the moment, because I think there's, there's just a lot to, there's a lot of internal sorting that's gonna take place about those questions. And the way that sorting comes out in one year may not be the, what it looks like in three years, you know, going into the presidential nominations process. Um, so, uh, so we'll have to see. Now, the sorting is also going to be affected by these kinds of issues, right? So, you know, if candidates can win um, nominations with 35% of the vote for, let's say, Senate or House seats, um, rather than having to appeal broadly uh, within the party, um, you know, that, that's going to have an effect on the kinds of candidates who run, the kinds of candidates who are, who are likely to be elected. Um, and so we can talk about primary election structures outside the presidential context. Um, that is another, you know, one of the areas that I think is a really good target for thinking about political reform that would be designed to try to get candidates, um, give incentives to candidates who have the broadest appeal 
uh, to um, to succeed in the primary and in the general uh, election. Um, so I don't know if you want to shift gears or you want to talk more. I'm happy to talk more about the presidential nominations process too. But, well, but again, let me just say, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm just repeating myself here, but but don't think that there's some silver bullet in terms of institutional design that if we only make this change or if we only made these three changes, then um, we wouldn't have to worry about extremist forces taking over our politics. You know, it, 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 if that's if, if the appeal is broad enough, you know, the, the political system is going to reflect that um, sort of inevitably um, in a democracy. Yes. Yeah, no, that's that's a good reminder. And and last question that's related to presidential primaries, but may take us into other primaries and other issues you want to raise. Um, and this picks up on a question that Fernita asked earlier. I mean, and because Fernita and I have been talking about presidential elections a bunch, in part because I had looked at the issue of ranked choice voting, not so much in the primary process, but potentially that states might use that to appoint their electors in the general election. And I was wondering if you had a thought, Rick, on the relative um, importance of the, of the issue that you're identifying now versus, you know, the risk of a repeat of like the three-way race that we had in 1992, where you have an insurgent candidate like a Ross Perot come in because there's the sense that the two-party system isn't adequately meeting the needs of the of the electorate and and related to your point about the Republican party needing to figure itself out. And it's, I think it's true of the democratic party as well, to some extent, you know, my own instinct is that we may be at more of a risk of that kind of, you know, third party insurgency in 2024 than we've been in the past. We didn't have it in 2020 and you never know for sure. But if, um, if the Republican party really fractures that invites you know, the 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 part that lost the internal battle to want to go outside the the party system, and and I don't know if you have thoughts. Yeah, on that. so so um, absolutely, I think that's right. Um, I think that um, one of the things I'm actually very interested in writing and and am writing about is what I call the political fragmentation that's going on in democracies, not just in the United States, but around the, in the Western democracies as well. Um, and what I mean by that is um, we, are, we, we, we are seeing the breakup of um, the large political parties that dominated for a long, long time. Um, and you see this in, you know, even a place like Germany, when they had their most recent general election, um, there were all sorts of third, fourth, fifth parties that did much better than they had done in the past. The two major dominant parties, you know, shrunk in their appeal to voters. And I think in the United States, with the first past the post system we have, you know, we will primarily see conflict organized through the two major parties. And there would be factional differences in the parties. But I think you're right. And as you know, for sure, you know, most young voters who sign up to vote sign up as unaffiliated. They don't want to identify with one of the two major parties. And given all of the forces in American politics right now, I would not at all be surprised to see, uh, you know, significant third or fourth party challenges um, in the coming years. Um, the fragmentation uh, away from a focus on the two major party figures. Um, and Ross Perot, of course, is a great example of that going, going back. Um, and so the question is, um, you know, how should we think about that in terms of voting rules and the like? So as I'm sure you've talked about in other podcasts. So one risk of that is that in the general election, if we have third and fourth party candidates who get enough votes that it becomes possible for one of the major party candidates to you know, win a state with 40 percent or 44 percent of the vote. You know, you could see that as a problem. You, you, you want candidates, uh, you know, to have broad appeal. Again, I, I'm, I, I'm trying to structure things so that more factional candidates have less likelihood of being successful. Um, the more the system fragments, the more there are third and fourth parties because voters are alienated 
um, and they want to vote for one of these parties, the, the more likely it is the vote gets spread out over a bunch of candidates in the presidential context, um, and that you get candidates winning states with less than 50% of the vote. We know in 2016, there were a number of states where the margin of victory was smaller than the third and fourth party vote. Uh, we saw that some in 2020 also. So ranked choice voting in the general election has two benefits. One is um, it means that those third and fourth party candidates are not going to be spoiler candidates in the same way because those voters will have an opportunity to say, okay, if my candidate isn't elected, here's who I think ought to be elected instead. And so if their candidates get five or 7% of the vote and then they're eliminated in the ranked choice voting counting, um, their second choice candidate will get those votes. Um, and the candidate who prevails would have to have a somewhat broader appeal than a candidate who can win with just sort of 40% of the vote. But the other side of this is with ranked choice voting, um, voters will be able to vote for candidates from third or fourth parties that they actually think represent issues that are not getting enough attention by the major parties. Um, but they'll be able to do that without feeling they're wasting their vote because it's known that that candidate is not gonna get close to getting enough votes to be elected. So they can express their view, You know, let's say they think um, neither party is sufficiently addressing some issue. And there's a candidate who runs on that issue from a third party. If a lot of voters vote for that candidate, it tells the major parties, you know, you need to pay attention to this issue. This is an issue voters care about and neither of the major parties is really emphasizing it enough. But voters will, will be able to do that with ranked choice voting um, without throwing their vote away because they all know that, okay, I can, I can send the message that let's say environmental issues are much more important um, than either party is recognizing or immigration issues are, or you know, whatever the issue might be, economic inequality issues are. Um, and then their second choice candidate will get their votes you know, once, once that third or fourth party candidate is eliminated. So I, yes, I think we have greater risk of more fragmentation in our general election with third and fourth party and independent candidates. I think that creates this problem that candidates with narrow, more narrow appeals could get elected. I think that's a problem. And I think ranked choice voting in the general election, as well as in the primaries, um, would help with that. And I agree with you, it's a looming issue that we're, we need to be aware that, that this is likely to become a, a, a more significant uh, a pattern. Um, Karina, do you wanna jump back in? Um, so I'm wondering uh, if we have enough time to transition to more discussion about uh, uh, reforming uh, the party primaries outside of the presidential nomination process. Yeah. Uh, how much time do we have to, to discuss how you spell Murkowski? <laughs> <laughs> because I, I think that the one of the the major points in the op-ed about the importance of competitive elections is a, is an important one, and I don't want to truncate that discussion. Um, so so let me get us started, and and I'll just take this as Rick unofficially agreeing to come back on the podcast for part two. I really do um, want to talk about competitive elections. By the way, I, I think that's a really really important issue that's not talked about enough, and I think also not well enough understood. So let's not lose that. Right, exactly. Um, and so I think, I, Rick, I want to give you a chance to set the stage and then we could um, uh, pick up on part two. Uh, but because I think, you know, in part, it, you know, this is just the the um, the the geek in me. <laughs> I'm like, I remember a long time ago, you wrote an article in a Stanford Law Review with Sam Isaacaroff about uh, competitive elections and kind of comparing uh, our, our our politics to economic markets where there's no competition. And, and it's it kind of changed the, the direction of the field. It was a really important article. And it was my first introduction to uh, the law of democracy. And, 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 and so um, the, the op-ed really sort of put me in the mindset of the, a lot of the work you've been doing in the past decades and advocating for a competitive election. So I want to invite you to speak more about it. 
Yes. So, um, so there's the issue of competitive elections and their value. And then there's the question of how we can design our systems mm-hmm. so that we get more competitive elections. So I'll, I'll just kind of talk about the first um, in, 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 in the time we have here, or at least in the initial discussion. So um, as many people know, you know, more and more politicians are being elected from seats that are overwhelmingly safe in the general election. Um, we know that a Democrat or a Republican, you know, is going to win the seat, whether it's, let's say, a House seat um, or a, a, could be a Senate seat, um, because of the way the district is structured, you know, it's, it's 75 or 80 percent Republican or Democrat. Now, what that means is that um, the primary election is the only threat a person from that party faces. And so if you have an incumbent uh, uh, from a district like this, a safe seat, um, all they worry about is fending off a primary challenger. Um, and these primary challengers often come these days from the wings, the more ideologically extreme wings of the party. Um, and so this creates tremendous incentives for these incumbents, let's say, you know, to move to the extremes um, in order to fend off a, a potential primary challenger. Um, and they, of course, all think preemptively, like they don't even want that challenger to arise. They, they want to position themselves so, so there is no space there. Um, now, in the way we used to think about elections, this is, goes back to Anthony Downs and the median voter theorem and kind of all of this, you know, the, the view was that candidates um, uh, would come towards the center in the general election because they're trying to win over the marginal voters, you know, who are necessary to, to get elected. Um, and, and those voters, you know, the, 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 the bulk of those voters is in, in the center. You get everybody, if you're on the left, you get everybody to the left of the center. The, 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 the conservative is not going to get those people. But the margin of victory in a competitive election is kind of more for the voters in the middle. Same thing for a, a Republican. Um, you're going to get all the voters kind of to the right. Um, but if it's a competitive election, you're fighting in the middle for those last remaining voters who tip the outcome. Um, but in safe seats, um, that dynamic is gone. Uh, the candidates have no incentive to come back to the center in the general election. And in fact, if they've gone very far to the extremes to fend off primary challengers or to win a primary, it can be very hard to come back to the center, even if they wanted to, because they've now locked themselves in to certain kinds of positions. Um, and in competitive elections, by which I mean, let's say, you know, they're likely to be won in the 53 to 55% range by candidate. Um, the candidates uh, are under competitive pressures. Um, they, you know, are, are cross pressured by different interests and they have to work to try to capture the tipping point voters who are kind of closer to the to the center of the political spectrum. They can't get elected just by uh, appealing uh, uh, to the ideological extremes of the party. Now, here's one of the most interesting things about this issue. Um, if you pay attention to the journalists who cover Congress and you know, kind of know it in an, in an actual kind of on the ground way, or lot, you know, just lots of the commentary about Congress, you constantly see stories about these, you know, uh, members from swing swing districts, um, and you know their differences from members from other parts of the of, of the country or in safe seats. Um, you know how how are the the uh, for example during the first impeachment process, there were all these moderate Democrats who got elected in competitive seats who kept holding back on supporting impeachment of President Trump um, while other parts of the party were, were pushing and pushing and pushing for impeachment. Um, then that dam broke when the information about the Ukraine phone call came out. But we know uh, from the people who com- cover Congress, there's, di- there's a difference in the voting behavior and the interest of members from 
competitive districts, um, and those in safe seats. But if you look at the political science literature, the political science literature says, oh, there's no difference between them. Doesn't matter if someone comes from a safe seat or a competitive seat. Um, now, how can that be? Um, and the answer to that, um, and this is this holds quite a lot of interest for me. The interest, the reason for that, is that the political scientists who are operating at you know an altitude of like five thousand feet, looking at data on the process, the data they look at is how people vote on roll call votes, and it turns out that on roll call votes where things are actually put to a vote, um, most Democrats, most Republicans vote the party line, regardless of the seat they're elected from. But what this completely misses, well, there's several things this completely misses. One is the whole dynamic of which things do or do not get on the agenda for a roll call vote and how many changes are made along the way to accommodate different interests in the party uh, I mean, let's just take the recent uh, um, American Rescue Package uh, legislation, you know, where we all know Senator Manchin, you know, um, the, probably the most moderate Democrat in the Senate caucus for the Democrats or one of them coming from a state with, that he has competitive elections in. Um, uh, that is a pro-Trump state in the general election, uh, but he wins. Um, um, successfully made some changes to the legislation at the last minute that pushed it in a view he thought was better policy that would be, be viewed as a, a, a moderating force, if you will. You may agree or disagree with his position. Um, but he didn't vote against it. When it came time to vote, he voted like all the other Democrats did. Does that mean it makes no difference whether someone comes from a competitive seat or a completely safe seat? No, that's a co completely concrete example of the difference, but it doesn't show up in this data that the political scientists rely on because they're just looking at roll call voting. The other thing about why that data is so misleading in my view is um, as Francis Lee, who I think is one of the, the great scholars of Congress um, on these issues has pointed out, roll call voting is being used or has been used more and more in recent years as a way for the parties to message things. Um, you know, they know that the legislation isn't going to get enacted ultimately. Um, and what they're doing is they're constantly trying to define the differences between themselves and the other party because control of Congress is up for stake, is up for grabs in every election. So, you know, they want to win the next election cycle. And so, of course, if roll call voting is about messaging for the party, you're also going to see a lot more party unity uh, on the things that come to a vote that the speaker, for example, allows to be voted on um, than when they're actually legislating and they actually, you know, this might become law and they care about the policies. Um, so anyway, there's a lot more to be said about all this, but I, I think just like monopolists um, get lazy and, um, you know, there are all these reasons, as you alluded to in that in that work we did early on. Um, there's all sorts of reasons in the market setting. We think it's very good for businesses to be under constant competitive pressure um, is good for the consumer. Ultimately, um, I also think in politics, it's good to have competitive pressure in the general election and know that if you're not satisfying the voters, um, you know, you're going to get thrown out of office rather than having people in safe seats. And I also think that is going to encourage uh, uh, the election of candidates uh, who are more sort of centrist to begin with, but also more likely to be willing to compromise and make deals in a way that's necessary for legislation to work in our separated power system. So um, a lot, you know, a lot more to talk about there. Um, and, and then on political reform, I should just at least make the connection. So I would like to see redistricting uh, reform uh, uh, done in a way that, 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 that gives the value of competitive elections a lot of weight in that process um, and trying to design districts in a way that, uh, you know, subject to various legal constraints, 
that 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 gives weight to uh, whether competitive or safe safe seats are being are being created. Um, you can have a system. I'm just going to stop with this line, um, uh, but you can have a system um, that looks fair in partisan terms. Um, because the percentage of seats each party wins is like roughly proportional to the percent of votes that party gets in these elections statewide. But every district could be 70% for one party or the other. Everybody could be in a completely safe seat. And if all you focus on is partisan fairness in outcome, you might think, gee, that's a great system. But if you think there's tremendous value in having legislators have to face competitive general elections, you might think, gee, that's a that's a bad that that's a troubling system because you can get lots of extremists from both parties elected, and then what kind of governance system are you going to end up with? Wow, well, yeah, that's a really good point and a really important point, and and one to end just this conversation on. I think. Um, you know, it's absolutely clear that uh, there's more to talk about. And again, we hope that you'll come back and Rick and and talk more about what's in the op-ed and what's in the broader um, agenda, because I think what's absolutely clear from our discussion today, as, as well as the op-ed, that, that you think this is a topic that deserves sustained attention, um, not just over the next two and four years. I mean, there's a kind of urgency to it, I think. Um, that means we really do, as a society, need to address it now. But it's, again, with that notion of humility that you mentioned, it's not like there's a magic fix that we can just instantly put in place. And we're, you, you talk about tendencies. So we, we got to kind of think about this again for the long term. So hopefully we get the right uh, institutional incentives that will protect us over time. Um, so why don't we, if Rick, if you're up for it, why don't we hit the pause button, as it were, and say uh-huh. that we've had a... Um, a good uh, initial foray into this uh, uh, inquiry, but that uh, we'll pursue it uh, in another round. I would be happy to do it. It's lots of fun talking with uh, both of you. Um, I uh, I don't know how many other people will enjoy it as much as I did, <laughs> but, uh, but it's great. And yes, of course, I'd be happy to do another round. Excellent. All right. Well, um, we've given our listeners a taste of what's uh, to come. And so... Uh, Bernita, let's sign off for today. Let's thank Rick for this first. Thank uh, you so much. This was an excellent conversation. Looking forward to to, to talking more. Take care, everybody. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. That's our episode for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Eric French and Jillian Thompson at Ohio State and Larissa Puro at USC for their roles in producing this podcast. Fernita and I very much appreciate all the support we receive at both our home institutions to make this joint endeavor possible.